Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The unknown superstar, one of the most amazing athletic feats, one of the most beautiful stories of obscurity coming into popularity were multiple headlines that told the story of Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz was the first woman to ever win the Boston Marathon, the first woman. Not only that, but she won this race when it was the first marathon that she had ever attempted to run. Not only that, but she was completely unknown in the world of competitive running and competitive racing, and the Boston Marathon draws some of the best runners from all over the world. What a truly amazing and astonishing feat. Now, not long after her win did red flags start to go off in the minds of other racers and running magazines and running blogs. They started asking some questions. First, how has no one ever heard of Rosie? How, is she, how has she won the Boston Marathon and no one knows anything about her? Secondly, how in the world did she win this massive marathon, 26.2 miles? How in the world did she win this and it being her first race? This would be akin to never throwing a baseball, showing up in the major leagues and throwing a shutout. 
your first ever appearance. This is absolutely uh, astonishing here. And then thirdly, the runners and the folks around the race, they started to notice her physique. They weren't body shaming her by any means, but you would think an elite athlete, particularly elite runners, they have certain physique. They noticed that her legs weren't very muscular. She resembled more of uh, the male equivalent of dad bod, right? She was, she was just average. She was just an average woman. And then the last bit of evidence, no one running the race ever saw her on the 26.2 mile race. No one ever saw her. In fact, after the race, it came out that people saw her jumping into the race at the last mile and running the last mile as hard as she could to win the Boston Marathon. You can't fake athletic performance, but you might be able to uh, present a very uh, telling story, a ruse here. This made Rosie the talk of the world, though. She was the talk of the world. Why in the world would you do this? You can't fake this. She was interviewed by people, and interview after interview, she never admitted her fraud, even after having all the evidence stacked against her. Later, she would be diagnosed as a sociopath. As a sociopath, she lied convincingly. She had no conscience of right or wrong. She had no understanding of what was good or bad. As we think about the audacity of Rosie, the absolute audacity of Rosie, we recognize that in our day-to-day lives, we're confronted with a lot of Rosies. The church is not even immune to having rosies that exist in them. We see this imposter uh, belief system. We see this imposter type personality in the church in Acts today, and we see it all in the churches throughout America, all over the world today. Rosies exist. Eugene Peterson calls these people religiopaths. So he takes sociopath, turns it on its religious head, religio pass. Y'all there? It's early, good, all right. Religio pass, that's gonna come up again. The thing is, God is committed to purifying his church from religio paths. If you think back to the Old Testament in Joshua chapter seven, there was a conquest and Achan was supposed to turn over the spoils to the Lord and seeing the spoils, he kept back some to himself In that infancy stage of God bringing his church into the promised land, Achan paid with his life immediately. We see Jesus in a similar way as he was coming to the temple when the money changers had turned God's house into a house of worship to one of profit. When they were bringing impurities into the church, what did Jesus do? He cleansed the temple. Now we see the New Testament church here And God is doing that same purification process. This makes us ask the question, how does God purify his church? How does God purify his church? We'll learn that God does it in one of two ways. He does it through grace, and he does it through judgment. God purifies his church. He's committed to it. He'll do it either through grace or either through judgment. Let's see God cleanse his church through grace in verses 34 through 35. Let's let's read that again. It says, there was not a needy person among them. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, what's taking place in this scene is absolutely culturally unique. It's very extraordinarily unique. The church in this, in this time frame was comprised of so many different people, so many different cultural backgrounds, so many different income levels, age ranges, you name it. This was a beautifully diverse church. And all these people were coming together and treating each other like family, like family. Now, this is unheard of, particularly in the first century where socioeconomic groups did not come together except the rich would lend to the poor and expect payment in return, right? Different cultures, different classes, they did not treat each other like family. But this is not the case in God's church. Those with property, those with homes, those with material goods, they were taking portions of it and they were selling and giving it to the apostles, the proceeds, they were giving the proceeds to the apostles so that they could give to other people in the church. And they may have not even known those people in the church. And they were meeting the needs of those who had them. Now it's like logically, you're like, yeah, that's what the church does. But really think about this. Put yourselves in their shoes. This is uncommon living. This does not make much sense. Put yourself in their shoes. I've worked very hard. I've invested well. I own lands. I have been frugal with my money. I have stewarded God's gifts well. And I'm gonna take a portion of that because I know that there's other people in need and I'm gonna sell it and I'm gonna bring all the proceeds and I'm gonna give it to the leaders that got the apostles in this instance and I'm gonna let those apostles distribute it to people that have need and I'm not gonna expect anything in return. I'm gonna sell off what I have, expect nothing in return just so others can have their needs met. This is uncommon living. This is not normal. We need to be asking, how in the world can people do this? What compels people to live like this? It wasn't like, we don't see in the text, they begrudgingly gave, but they were willingly out of joy giving. How in the world were they doing that? What's their motivation? Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I need to make a quick aside that this text is not a biblical case for socialism or communism. This is not what's happening here. Notice that there was clear private ownership here. People were giving willingly. They were voluntarily giving their money. They were not directed to or forced by any government. So this isn't a biblical case for socialism. And some people are trying to make that argument. I would say the text doesn't lend itself to that. What this is, however, is a group of people that believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They really believed this. And they knew the generosity of God giving his only son to die for, to pay for the sins 
that they've all committed, sins that they didn't even realize they committed, God did all that to bring them forgiveness, to turn these strangers into family. They knew this, they believed this, they witnessed this, and out of the overflow of that truth produced them to follow Jesus' steps and to be generous and to be loving, and they took care of other people around them. Think about it, what do healthy families do? What healthy families do? They care for each other. They care for each other well. But even amongst healthy families, it's very hard to be generous. My favorite water in the world, and I'm so bougie about water, is Topo Chico. I love Topo Chico, particularly lime. And guess who also has a taste for Topo Chico? My five-year-old. What do five-year-olds do really well when they drink out of something after their mouth is full of food? They leave all kinds of leftovers in your drink. It's very hard for me to crack one of those waters open and to want to drink it, and then my son with a mouth full of whatever things that he's gotten in his mouth, who says, I want some water. It's very hard, right? Think about, though, how hard it is to love people who are much different than you. Think about loving people who are so very different from you, and the only thing that you have in common is your faith in Jesus. Think about that. It's challenging. It's hard. Sometimes we want to uh, reduce Christ's resurrection as our primary identity and put other things and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I can't stand them because of blank. It's hard to die to that. But notice what existed in this community. What's unique about this community? Look at 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. So what drove this community to live generously? It wasn't outside compulsion. The apostles weren't saying, this is what you must do. There was no outside rules motivating them. It was a community of people who clung to the resurrected Jesus. They clung to Jesus. And the result was God's grace was purifying them from the inside out. And the result was a band of broken sinners from various parts of the world coming together. And y'all, they were literally changing the world. We are here today because of God's great purifying grace through this church. Joni Erickson Tata has this beautiful quote. She says, believers are never told to become one in the Bible. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Notice the text didn't say that this church was perfect. This was not a perfect church. It was full of sinners. Nor were they the same, were they uniform in all of their opinions and cultural assumptions. But what was their everything in common? Their everything in common was their heart and soul, their identity. Their identity was in Christ. And everything else was secondary. Their identity was Christ and everything else was secondary. Now, a question for us to ask is, not is there, but what 
secondary beliefs exist in your heart, exist in your life that keep Christ from being primary in your life? What secondary beliefs in your life keep you from loving other people very different from you as family, as a loving family, and doing it willingly? Let's just think about what's going on in our culture. Is it political? Is it socioeconomic status? Is it views on education? Is it views on music and movies and how we spend our time and what we watch? Is it vaccines and masks? What is it? Views on alcohol, what color the carpet should be. Should y'all have hired a redneck to be a preacher? What in the world is keeping us from loving other people as family. Because if we can't identify it, we can't die to it. And if we can't die to it in Christ, then somebody who is an enemy of the church who we're about to be encountered with will come in and create havoc and chaos inside the church. So let's identify it now and confess and repent and trust that God will be purifying us by his grace in this process. Now, I'm not saying secondary beliefs are not important. I'm not saying views on education, uh, uh, recreation, drugs, whatever. I'm not saying that that's not important. The Bible speaks to all these things. But what I am saying is that if there is a secondary belief or conviction that keeps you from loving other people who are very different from you, there's something there that keeps you from loving them well, that treats them another way than a blood-bought child of Christ, repent. Repent as a church and pray for God to work in us and to help us see people for more than their secondary convictions, to help see that they, if they are in Christ and in him crucified, that we would love them the way that Christ loves us. This process, though, of dying to ourselves, this process of dying to our secondary convictions and living for other people, that's a hard process. That is not easy. It's easy to look and just give that Presbyterian amen with that nod. It's good, like, that is so hard to do. This is why churches die all the time, because they can't do this well. And there's a reason why there's healthy churches like Christ Church East. We do this well. We're not perfect, but we do this well. I love being here with y'all. When we recognize this in ourselves, though, as a church, let us pray together. Let us repent. Let us trust in God to, to purify us by his grace because God loves us. He loves his church too much to let anything be our primary identity besides him, besides Christian, besides follower of Christ. He loves us too much to let anything get in the way. So we've asked, how does God purify his church? In this first section, we learn that God purifies through grace, but now we turn and see how God purifies through judgment. We see this in chapter five, verses one through 11. And this is a shocking passage. Uh, A cursory reading of this text, it kind of sets you back a little bit. Like, wow, there was immediate judgment that took place. On the surface, this does seem harsh. It does seem harsh. 
However, as we start to peel back the onion here, as we start to dig into what's really going on here, what we'll see is that this is an expected response from God. When we see this taking place in the church, this is not normative. It doesn't happen a one-to-one correlation. I don't mess up and God kills me, right? But when we read it, Billy, yep, I definitely see why God acted that way, okay? So let's dig in. So prior to this section, we read about Joseph. We read how Joseph sold a portion of his property and he brought all of the proceeds to the apostles and the apostles distributed it to everyone in the church that had need. We know that Joseph did this willingly. He did this out of the overflow of what Christ did for him. And this was such a beautiful gesture of generosity, of living out of what Christ had done for him, that the apostles gave him a new name, a nickname that everybody would call him. He went from Joseph to Barnabas, son of encouragement. And you can imagine being this young church uh, created and built with so many people with all various different needs that this gesture was massively encouraging to meet the needs of others in the church. So it's a huge gesture, so much so that Barnabas is recorded in this instance. And if you really dig in and study the Bible, like at a scholarly level, you know that these writers were not interested in giving anybody any sort of fame. They made it all about Jesus. That's why we don't have a lot of depictions about what people look like. They don't want attention coming to themselves as writers or to people, but this was a huge deal here. You can imagine this happening and, and the nickname happening. Everybody in the church would be like, oh, that's, that's Joseph. Oh, that's Barnabas. Man, he's so encouraged. You can imagine that life. And what happened? There was people in the church who saw this. We're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira who saw this taking place. And you can just imagine what was going on in their minds and their hearts as they were devising this plan. Like, oh man, we're, we're gonna go sell some land. Can you imagine what my nickname's gonna be? I wanna be Ultimate Warrior. I wanna be Sting. I wanna be Laser. I wanna be something awesome. I can't wait to get my nickname in front of everybody, show them what's going on. I'm gonna be awesome. I'm gonna get a hat. Definitely gonna get a sticker. Can't wait. So they watched all this. They devised this plan in their hearts. And what Ananias and Sapphira did is they sold off a piece of land. They brought the money to the apostles, but kept back some for themselves, but let everybody in the world think that they sold everything and they pulled a Barnabas, right? They were being a couple of rosies here, being a couple of rosies. Notice that they were a part of the church. Now, it doesn't say anything about were they believers or not, but they were just a part of the church. They showed up regularly. They obviously saw what was going on in the life of the church. Outwardly, there's nothing that's giving any other red flags to people around them, but given the right time and opportunity, they fell into temptation. That inward desire birthed its way into absolute death. Notice Peter's response. Peter being led by the Holy Spirit. He says this in verses three and four, and notice Peter's not judging them. Peter's not even the one pronouncing judgment on them. Peter is not the one leading any sort of discipline for them. He just asks some questions. Look at it here. Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter is witnessing this scene and he's watching Ananias come forward and he recognizes very early on that this had what the Puritans called the hoof prints of Satan all over it. One of my favorite pastors said this instance came from the pit of hell and it just smelled like smoke, right? Peter recognized this behavior because he had been tempted and tried just like Satan did. Peter tried to stop Satan from going to the cross and Satan said what? Get, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Don't twist that or tweet that. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan wasn't saying that. Anyway, Peter knew that this was the work of Satan. Peter knew it and he called it out immediately. The Bible tells us a lot about Satan. And for our sake, I'm gonna describe a couple of ways the Bible uh, reveals Satan to us. In John 8, 44, Satan's called the father of lies. We learned that he deceives from 1 Timothy 2.14, and he disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. Amongst a bunch of other evils, when we start to take that data about Satan, we start to see that his job, his goal in life is to destroy God's work in his church. His job is to render it lifeless, and ineffective. One way to do this is to erode its power from within by creating disunity and separation in the church. Disunity and separation. When you see that in the church, we must recognize that's got the hoof prints of Satan all over it, y'all. D.L. Moody famously said, I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where God's people are divided. This church in Acts, think about it. It was in its infancy. Later in chapter five, we see that multitudes were coming to faith in Jesus. So when this church is vibrant, it's young, they are together, they are united in their mission and vision, you better expect Satan or one of his legion of fallen angels to show up and try to destroy everything that church is doing. And he tried. But notice, Satan doesn't work in ways that we would expect him to work. We would think they, there would be some sort of huge, uh, horrific terror that breaks out in the church and everybody's scared and flees. Governments have tried that to the church for centuries and it doesn't scatter them, it strengthens them, and it makes them stronger. Satan knows this about God's people, so what he does is he erodes us from the inside out. Satan's got the long game in mind with the church, and Satan works in the minutia. Satan works in the fine details, the subtleties that we as good Christian people are willing to give the benefit of the doubt to, but God doesn't overlook small details. God's in the fine details. He cares about them. Satan, he was working through Ananias. 
He was working through this, this little inward lie, this inner desire to, to take the things that belong to God and make for himself a name and reputation. He was taking God's goods to make himself something. He wanted the, the glory and the adulation of others. He wanted to be something instead of making God something by praising God. He was a glory thief. He was a religiopath. He's full of hypocrisy. And his deception was disguised as light. So think about all those things we just talked about with Satan. Think about what Ananias and later Sapphira are doing. They're being deceptive. They're trying to bring glory to themselves. They were bringing this offering as, as it's this beautiful thing, which in fact, it really wasn't. This was a satanic impurity that existed in this church and God needed to move swiftly. God needed to move swiftly. This church was living in the beauty of the resurrection. They weren't trying to think that there are actually wolves in here that would try to take glory away from what God was doing. They were young. They were, they were in their infancy, and they needed immediate protection. It's, it's similar to infants with weak immune systems, Right, We just don't hand infants right out of the womb to just strangers to kiss all over and touch and hug and touch their mouth and face. Why do people do that anyway? Uh, sorry. We want to be like, please don't. This brand new baby, please don't kiss him. I don't know you. God had to move swiftly here. This young infant church needed immediate protection. This glory-stealing hypocritical self-worship, once you start to peel that back, this is a direct war against God. Ananias and Sapphira were going to war against God, following the charge of Satan. And they're going up against God and trying to take on his bride, the church. You should expect God to move swiftly to care for his bride. You should expect God to move in power when someone is threatening to destroy his children. And to be frank with y'all, I don't wanna worship a God who is anything less than that. I don't want to worship a weak and insipid God. I want to worship a holy and powerful God who knows how to move at the right time. God promised that he would protect his church. Look at Malachi chapter three, one through three. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant is coveting, coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire in a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. This scene with Ananias and Sapphira is exactly what's being described and prophesied in Malachi. God will purify his church like a silversmith who through fire refines the silver over and over and over until he can see his reflection in the silver. God is refining us. 
He is committed to purifying us so that nothing stands in the way of us reflecting God's image. God is committed to doing that in us. This means that we can either be purified by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone, who turns our crimson sin snow white, we can trust that purification process, or we can allow God to purify his church through judgment. Sadly, Ananias and Sapphira chose judgment. A few hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she rolls up. She asked, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for such and such? Peter, knowing she was full of it, asked her, and this is another instance of God's grace allowing her to repent. She still had more time to choose God's grace, to confess it. But she didn't. She went along with the lie. Ananias and Sapphira chose to be refined by judgment instead of grace here. Instead of them dying to their desire to be glorified and celebrated and popular and loved, and y'all, that's something hard to die to. We love being loved. That's a real thing that exists in all of us, including me. It's so hard to die to that, but they chose not to die to it. They chose not to die to it chose to go to war with God, and they ended up dying instead. It's powerful. It leaves us wondering, how should we respond to this text? What's an appropriate response to seeing God's judgment fall immediately? First, we respond like the church did in the text, and it's fear, fear. I mean that fear that's more than just respect. We should tremble when we start talking about the things of God. God is love. He is. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. But we must not get it twisted that God's first and primary attribute repeated three times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the only time that happens in the Bible, one word repeated three times about God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. He is not to be toyed with. His church is not to be toyed with. Sin is not to be toyed with. Because of God's perfect holiness, fear is an appropriate response. We need to remember to have immense respect for God we need to have immense respect for his word and how much he loves the church. He loves the church enough to send his son to die for her. God has a holy love and he will fiercely protect his children. He will fiercely protect his bride. Not only fear, but we should respond with regular confession regular repentance. We should confess our sins of hypocrisy, of glory theft, of self-worship. We all have little rosies in us. I've got more rosies in me than all of y'all combined. But the difference is we don't need to try to act like it's not there. 
to try to appear to be something that we're not. Because if you trust in Jesus, you realize his opinion of you matters more than anything and anyone's opinion on earth. We can be vulnerable. We can confess our sins. And we could turn to Christ in repentance. We can come to God and ask him to reveal those areas of glory thievery in our hearts, how we're hypocrites, how we are professing a gospel better than what we live. And y'all, this is three fingers at me. I'm the one calling y'all to repent and I need to repent and confess my hypocrisy more than y'all ever could. But that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He knows we're hypocrites. He knows we can never live up to his standards. That's why he died for us. We live in the freedom of his death and resurrection. It allows us to be open. We know that when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness, from all blemishes. God will purify us. And lastly, we can respond in praise. Fear, confession, praise, worship. If we realize how much sin we have and we understand what God did to save us, how Christ left his home in eternity to come and live amongst us perfectly, to die in our place and rise again, to bring us into God's family, if we realize that God isn't necess- doesn't have to save sinners, if we realize that God is not programmed to have to save sinners, that he could purify us through pure judgment and he would still be just as righteous, if we realize that God chose to save us out of his love, that he finds us, as the text says, dead in our trespasses and sins, and he saves us when we're at our worst and chooses to refine us by his grace, then that's so, such a reason to respond in worship. Such reason to respond in worship. We should be so thankful that God chooses to purify us by his grace. I'm so thankful for it. University of Virginia had a student by the name of uh, Danny Folly. And Danny was in love with their college basketball team. Now, I grew up in a college basketball area in North Carolina around the Charlotte-Raleigh area. Um, college basketball is, is huge. It's kind of like UF football is down here. And um, Danny was a huge fan of UVA's basketball team, so much so that he noticed what the players and the coaches uh, they wore uh, while they were sitting on the bench. He noticed what the trainers would wear, what all their staff would wear. They would wear these blue blazers with these hideous orange ties uh, with khakis and shoes. And so what he did was he devised a plan where he would go and get their exact wardrobe. So he went to Walmart, got the suit, got the tie, got the shirt, got everything, took his student ticket, and very boldly walked down to the court right by the cheerleaders with all the staff and hung out on the sidelines like some sort of intern or staff with UVA's basketball team. They were in the ACC championship against Duke that year. And Duke is horrible, but regardless, they were together and he was hanging out. No one questioned him. He looked like everyone else. 
So much so that after UVA won that game, he walked through the handshake line. You know the line where the winners, the losers go by and they shake hands? He had the audacity to walk down the handshake line. He even got to shake Coach K's hand. And Coach K was Duke's famous coach. He's since retired. But he got to shake his hand. He was on the court when the confetti was falling and partying and high-fiving with the team. He was having a blast. He had the championship t-shirt on over his suit and was loving life. Nobody could believe Danny had snuck onto the court and did that. One of the trainers, although, noticed that, it's like, man, I don't know who that guy is, right? Said, hey, let me see your credentials. Danny took off and ran up the bleachers. He was never caught. What a phenomenal story. I'm not condoning that. Any children that we have here, that's a really cool story. This was largely a harmless prank. But it's possible to attempt something more harmful by faking your way through the Christian faith. That's something much more dangerous. Is that you this morning? I don't say that in judgment. This is the best place to be if this is you this morning. If you realize that you've just got the tie and the coat on and you realize that inwardly, this this fear of God, this lifestyle of faith and repentance, this desire to worship God, to live generously, if you realize that Christ isn't your primary identity, you're in the best place in the world because it's here where we're about to taste and see that God is a God of forgiveness because Jesus was so loving towards you that he died for you, every one of your sins, and would let you come empty-handed like we're gonna see at communion and leave tasting and seeing how beautiful and how gracious and forgiving He is. If that's you this morning, I'm glad you're here. Let's talk after the service. I've heard of stories of guys being in the church for 30 and 40 years, serving even as elders in churches. And when the pastor was leaving, they came and told the pastor at his retirement that he wasn't saved till about six months ago. Served in the church for three decades. And about a few weeks before the pastor retired, he came to Christ for the first time. Preachers aren't immune to this. Y'all aren't immune to this. Let us, let us ask for God to refine us regularly. If you are here this morning and you do trust in Jesus and you know the areas in your life that God is refining you, if you trust in Jesus, if Christ is your primary identity, then you've got actual work to do. You have got to pray for this church the church in America, and the church around the world. We know the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, but this doesn't let us off the hook from praying for unity amongst diversity in our church. Pray that Satan would be far from this church. Pray that we would be a generous church, a loving church, a church that cares about Christ and him crucified and him glorified forever. Pray that we would not be a church who cares about secondary things over the primary mission and vision of God's church, which is to make him known. Pray that we would not be a church that as we grow, continue to to grow inward or grow inward. 
Pray that we would be a church that does not seek to judge the outside world like us versus them, but for us to see that we have blessings to give other people. Pray that we would not be a church that navel gazes and becomes cliquish and forgets why God has us here. Y'all, I've served in churches like this. They are brutal. They are terrible. It almost ruined me from standing here today. But let me speak about God's grace in this church. Y'all have loved me so well. You've loved my family well. You've been generous to me more than I could ever repay you. And I have a vested interest for the glory of God to preach and to teach and to lead in a way that we don't get to where I've seen so many churches become. I care too much about God's grace. I care too much about the work that God's got us to do at East. So if you claim Jesus this morning, pray for the purity and the peace and the celebration of Christ in this place more than we would ever care about anything else in this world. I love y'all. Let me pray. Father, you are a holy, holy, holy God. And that holiness loves perfectly. You know what your church needs. You know what your bride needs. You know what your children need. And you give it generously. You give it uh, in overflowing amounts. More than anything, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be overflowing at East. That great grace would be overflowing in us like it was in this church, that you would bring this band of sinners together and that our music would be a beautiful melody to you and to this world, that we would not hide the light of your goodness on a hill uh, or under a basket, but we would be a light on a hill proclaiming your beauty and goodness to this world, not as our enemy, but people who are desperate to hear your good news. Lord, remind us regularly that we are beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And would we open our doors to everyone who's seeking you. God, make us a loving and generous church. As you've already demonstrated, would you continue that work in us? Would you keep Satan free from East? Would you make us a church committed to prayer, committed to your word, and committed to making you famous and glorified and honored. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.